This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 27. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 27 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihetten and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funihetten. Good morning, Randy. Good morning, Lynn. I am excited about today <laughs> because we are kicking off a short series focused on our parents. So tell us who we have today. Yes, I'm equally excited. We are talking today with Jessica Leahy. Jessica is an educator, writer, and speaker. She's an English and writing teacher, correspondent for The Atlantic, commentator for Vermont Public Radio, and writes the parent-teacher conference column for The New York Times. She's author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Jessica earned earned a BA in comparative literature from the University of Massachusetts and a JD with a concentration in juvenile and education law from the University of North Carolina School of Law. And she's currently living in New Hampshire with her husband and two sons. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you. It's snowing here today. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Snow in April. I know. I know. Uh, and it was beautiful just a couple of days ago, but we it's really snowing actually right now. Wow. Well, better there than here, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So to kick our conversation off about your work and your book, uh, author Warren Berger describes a beautiful question as one that's ambitious and actionable. What is the beautiful question behind your book, The Gift of Failure? You know, I think the core question, and it is ambitious, and it's sort of difficult to figure out how to make it best actionable. But the big question behind the gift of failure is, am I a good parent? I mean, really, a lot of the questions that I was asking myself and parents were asking me as a teacher really boiled down to, you know, am I, am I a good parent? And what that means, what that looks like, um, became sort of the, the focus of work, my work for about two years and was the focus behind the gift of failure. And I think that a beautiful question is going to be very valuable to our listeners and also to our parents who we hope are going to be tuning into this podcast. Mm-hmm. So let's move on with the conversation. So I, um, as we were talking in when we first opened our conversation here, I have a 12-year-old and it is definitely hard to give him that freedom to fail. 
um, help help us understand why is it so important? Why do we need to do that? And what are the long-term consequences for protecting our children from these failures? Well, um, I actually happen to have a 12-year-old. Oh, as really? Well. A 12-year-old <laughs> and a 17-year-old. Okay. And but I've also I've taught for on and off for 17 years and um, mostly middle school, some high school as well. And the thing that I found is that my job as a teacher is to help kids feel the consequences of their mistakes and adapt in a healthy way to those mistakes and move forward. And the problem I found is that I was having trouble helping students do this because their parents were constantly rescuing them from the consequences of these mistakes. And so much of what, especially in middle school, because middle school is this sort of big failure experiment. I mean, we give kids too much to deal with and then watch them sort of struggle with it day after day. Uh, so much of what we're trying to do is help them learn that adaptability and that positive reaction to failure and mistakes. And, uh, and when we can't do that, we're sort of cut off at the knees as teachers. Sure. And, and what are the ramifications, the long-term consequences um, for children if they don't learn to fail in middle school? And, you know, how can they, what do they learn when we do give them that freedom to fail? Uh, you know, I think a lot of what they learn is um, that, like, I'm, I use that word adaptation because I really think that's the best way to describe what we try to do is help kids say, okay, that didn't go well. I can't deny that it didn't go well. I have to actually accept it. And I have to figure out what parts of that not going well, that failure, that mistake, whatever you want to call it, should I carry forth forward with me to, into my next attempt or what should I let go of? What, what do I you know, need to step up and say, mm, no, that, that didn't work so well. And if I try it again, I'll really just be beating my head against a wall. And, you know, that constant everyday conversation, oh, you forgot your homework. Well, how are you using your full, how are you using your curriculum book? Okay, well, that may not be working so well for you. Is there something else you'd like to try? That constant repetition of, you know, this didn't go so well, how would you like to go forward for next time is sort of at the heart of, of what teachers do best, I think. And, and, you know, what was so strange is that my parent brain and my teacher brain got somehow disconnected. I don't know how that happened, but it did. And, and I realized I was doing a lot of things for my students at school to help them adapt positively to their mistakes that I was not doing at home with my own children. And and that was sort of part of that whole very painful exploration mm -hmm. that came into the book. So in education, one of the things we've been talking about a lot lately is this idea of modeling and, and recreating a lot of what uh, students need to do in the real world, what they're going to have to do when they get out into the real world. So it sounds like a lot of these parenting strategies are very similar to that, too. We want to uh, provide our students with the opportunities to uh, react or be proactive in ways that will prepare them for once they do get released from schooling uh, and from our parenting that they'll be able to be successful at on their own. Right. And, and a lot of parents ask me, you know, the hardest question I get is, you know, what should the consequence to, you know, if I set expectations for my kids and I want them to, you know, get their homework done or whatever that thing is, and they don't meet those expectations, you know, what should I give as a consequence? And I always say, you know, I can't tell you what the consequence should be at your home, but you should make sure it's something really closely wedded to the thing that they have failed to do. So, you know, one of the common things that I, I recommend is that kids, if they're not getting their homework done, for example, that they have to make that um, that conference with their teacher and then sit down and really lead the conference and sort of help figure out how let the teacher and the parent 
help them figure out ways to strategize for the future. And, you know, when we say things like, oh, you didn't do your homework, so you can't have your iPhone, the problem is there, those, the, that's not a natural consequence of not doing your homework. So it, you have to get a little bit creative in, in helping kids feel the actual consequences of not, um, not fulfilling the, the expectations that we set out for them as parents and teachers. In your book, you talk about motivators and mm-hmm. the idea that competence and mastery are strong motivators. So what are some ways that we uh, can best parent for autonomy and competence? And what are some ways that we should avoid because they take away from autonomy and competence of our children? Yeah, I mean, if you read the one of my favorite sources to point people towards, obviously, is Dan Pink. And he talks about extrinsic motivators and intrinsic motivators. And extrinsic motivators like the positive ones, for example, you know, giving kids a lollipop if they stay quiet for 20 minutes while you're on the phone or, you know, giving them 10 bucks for their, for their um, math <laughs> quizzes every week. Um, those, those things and the negative ones like, you know, grounding kids or controlling them or sur- doing surveillance over our kids. All of those extrinsic motiv- motivators actually decrease their long-term motivation to learn, to do the things we want them to do over the long term. So one of the things we have to do is we have to step back a little bit and, and let them actually take the reins of their of school. And I know that gives parents the heebie-jeebies, but let them take some control over the details of their school life and their social life and those sorts of things so that they can feel like they're actually, like they have some agency, that they can feel competent about their own, you know, their own accomplishments. And, and the nice thing about that is that it's really a self-perpetuating cycle. When you teach kids that they can struggle a little bit, maybe give them some what we call desirable difficulties, teach them how to do something one way, teach them how to do it another way, and then give them a whole new situation to go out and solve for themselves, that really allows them to feel competent. And that competence allows them to go forth to the next instance of, you know, a desirable difficulty and feel competent there, too. So it's, it really is wonderful to see kids all of a sudden get some control over their academic lives and then, and then see them sort of just start to glow with this feeling of, yes, I can do this. It's, it's just really fun to watch. So I, I'm hearing you the kids glow with, yes, I can do this. And um, moving into our next question, talking about praise, and you identify this as a slippery parenting tool. Um, And I find it interesting that you said we have to let the kids glow. Um, Tell with us a little bit of, talk with us a little bit about some of the research on praise and how we can take our current ways of praising to turn them into more positive opportunities for growth and for our kids to be able to glow. Yeah, I definitely want to take the opportunity to um, to talk about the oversimplification that's been happening about praise and about Carol Dweck's work with mindset. Um, you know, I think the, the mindset stuff, it's, it's so important. And, you know, in a nutshell, you know, her work shows that kids with a fixed mindset, kids who just sort of believe that their intelligence is fixed and they either have it or they don't, versus a kid who believes that the harder they work, the more they stretch themselves, the smarter they can become. Um, some people have oversimplified that and turned that into um, the the soundbite, we should praise kids for effort. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have a kid who's co- consistently over and over again failing at a task and all we're doing is praising them for trying hard, that's just dumb. You're not getting that kid anywhere. You're not helping them. You're not supporting them. You're not helping them have a positive adaptive response to failure. But 
if you take praise and you talk about the process instead of an end product, if you're constantly, especially for these kids that are so anxious about looking perfect all the time, every time they come to you and they say, oh, well, I got a 94 instead of a 100 and, and I'm feeling like that's just not good enough. Every time a kid comes to you with something like that, if you can bring it off, take the, the emphasis off of the, you know, the praise for the A or the praise for, you know, the, just the effort and bring it back to, well, what did you do to get there? What might you try next time? Did you talk to the teacher and find out what the teacher recommends, you know, that you try for, for studying for next time? Um, bring it back to the process as much as possible and praise them for things like, I know that was really, really frustrating for you. Long division seems to be really tough for you. And I'm so proud of you for sticking with that problem because I could see you were just really frustrated by it. Mm -hmm. Giving them that sort of feedback about what we value in them is, is the learning and their, and their ability to stick with things that may be difficult in the first sort of in that first flush of frustration um, that they don't give up, that we say, yeah, I'm really proud of you for not giving mm -hmm. up the first second you noticed that was frustrating for you. Sure, and that reinforces what we're talking about in education also, this idea of very specific targeted feedback mm -hmm. and, you know, I identifying what what is the positive, the effort well, and, and sustainability there. And, and going beyond that, one of the best things I saw in this past year when I've been out on the road speaking at lots and lots of schools, there was a school in California um, where I met some team teachers who, as part of their weekly planning uh, for their class, plan their own failures. They plan their own mistakes so that the kids, and if the kids don't catch them, the kids can catch them in their mistakes. And if the kids don't, then the parent, the, the uh, excuse me, the, um, the co-teachers can catch each other in their mistakes and model for the kids really healthy response to mistakes, whether that's asking for, you know, making amends to the kids for making a mistake or making amends to their co-teacher or managing the fallout from that mistake in a really positive way for the kids. And, and I think as a parent, I sort of, I'm so invested in my kids seeing me as perfect, which, you know, I, they get that I'm not perfect. And yet I seem very invested in not telling them about the failures of my, you know, my professional life or my personal life. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the most important things I can do for them is model mm -hmm. my own, you know, responses to the things I screw up. So in your book, you devote an entire chapter to sports, mm -hmm. and uh, a significant number of our school-aged children do participate in sports. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of sideline parenting should we embrace to ensure that these athletic experiences contribute positively <laughs> to the growth of our children? Yeah, so I have 50% of my children are athletic. <laughs> one of my kids is and one of my kids is not. And so, you know, the sports world for me was actually something that at the time I, I really had to research. It wasn't my thing. Um, and, you know, I also happen to live in a place where we have a little bit more um, relaxed recreational sports for some sports. I mean, hockey here tends to get pretty insane and intense. And actually, cross-country skiing here tends to get very intense. But, you know, I think that one of the things I've learned is that, you know, from being on the sidelines of, of many matches and watching parents, is that so much of the sort of getting each other riled up about what's happening with our kids on the field or what our kids are achieving, whether it's on the field or at school, we have all those conversations about the traveling soccer leagues and the math tutors and the, the private cello teacher that, 
we tend to get each other all riled up about this stuff, and it's really contagious. I mean, and Wendy Grolnick, a researcher um, in Worcester, call, in Worcester, Massachusetts, calls it pressured parents phenomenon and talks about it, it's how highly contagious it is that we whip each other up into a frenzy. And, you know, the best advice I can give to parents when they feel themselves getting a little bit too concerned with what, how much time their kid is playing on the soccer field or, you know, whether or not they have that private tutor that they hadn't even thought about before they showed up on the soccer field and uh, soccer sidelines and heard someone else talking about it, is to just walk away. Just realize that this stuff is contagious. It's not, it sounds dire in the moment, but it's not, it's not the thing that should be driving um, our lives with our children. And, and my favorite thing, actually, in the sports chapter was the part about the, uh, the guy who is a coach for other coaches. And, and he had done some research where it was really an informal study where he talked to really successful um, athletes, really serious athletes in college, and asked them about their favorite and least favorite moments in, sport, in these sports. And their least favorite moments were the drive home with their parents and car, which I'm Aww. sorry, that's when the best conversations happen because everyone's yeah. bored and captive. <laughs> captive audience. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I also <laughs> loved that the kid, their favorite thing about youth sports was when their grandparents came to watch. Mm. So over and over again, my advice to really to sports parents is to act more like a grandparent and less like a parent. To just, you know, take some joy out of your kid's enjoyment of sports and be a little less worried about, you know, how much playing time they got or, you know, how many goals they got. I'm going to have my husband read that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> it was a fun chapter. To, it was a really fun chapter to do because as an, as a, someone who tends to be academically oriented, um, it was really interesting to put my brain in that sports place. And it was, uh, it's funny because I heard um, Angela Duckworth recently who wrote, who has this book Grit coming out. She's mm -hmm. sort of a grit maven. Um, was saying that her her research on grit has made her suddenly become a sports fan, which has been an interesting perspective for her too. So, um, yeah, this is a this has been a new thing for the both of us. So, are there any specific unique areas for overparenting in middle school um, or even high school parents that you'd like to talk about? Well, you know, after, I'm writing right now actually from the perspective of school, excuse me, school counselors and. What I'm hearing from the school counselors is that I'm hearing some really disturbing things, actually, that parents are so interested in making sure that their kid is, is better than average. Average is this, you know, this term where just is not acceptable anymore. And so parents are increasingly getting their kids tested so that they, for various things so that they can hopefully get more time on tests. Parents are putting a lot of pressure on the schools to increase homework. I mean, there's all this brouhaha over, you know, does homework, is it a worthwhile use of time? And at the same time that parents are asking schools to back off, many schools' parents are asking them to increase it as well, which is a weird, you know, talking out both sides of their mouths. I'm not sure what's happening there. And then, and then trusting teachers. I think um, teachers are in a really difficult position right now where they're being asked to they're being held accountable for students' um, performance, and they're also being asked by parents to treat every single student as as if they're being uh, having a one-on-one -on -one tutor sort of experience. And you know, I think it's time for parents to realize how challenging it is for teachers to teach a classroom full of kids, and also for teachers to realize that parents are under a lot of pressure 
because they perceive this whole game, this whole school to, or, you know, high school to college transition as just beyond stressful right now. So I think we need to have a little bit more patience with each other. Hence the reason that, you know, one of the first things I really wanted to write in the book was the, the chapter on the importance of parent-teacher relationships, because mm-hmm. I, I really think that's what's getting lost. That's the sacrifice in this entire struggle um, with, you know, pressure at schools and, and, uh, and holding teachers accountable and, you know, all the parent guilt and stuff like that. It's the parent-teacher relationship that's really mm-hmm. falling apart. It's interesting you say that over this. We just had a, a long Easter break, and one of my friends told me her, her son was like a different child without having to worry about homework and school, <laughs> and that he was suddenly talking to her again. And it just was, it's really interesting. I'm making that connection to what you're sharing right now. Yeah, uh, 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 my editor actually at the New York Times uh, at one point wrote about the fact that one night they just homework got left somewhere, they had something that ran late, and they ended up going out to eat together as a family um, because they just realized it was late enough, that was what they had to do. And they had this dinner together where they were suddenly talking to each other in a low-stress environment, and she just, she realized that, you know, most of the time, they're just under so much pressure to get the homework done every night that it, it creates a very unpleasant atmosphere in their house, and what was being sacrificed there was their family dynamic. And, and she sort of said, wow, I got this one night away from it, and I realized what was lost. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And certainly in, in our world, homework is a hot topic. You know, mm-hmm. you've got people that are very much in favor of it, and you get people that are very much on the other side of, mm-hmm. you know, not, not very much proponents of homework. Right. And, you know, we certainly hear lots of stories of how parents take over the homework assignments because for various reasons, um, <laughs> which you won't go into. Okay, I've done some of the, I've done some word searches myself, I'll admit it. Maybe. Well, no, I don't think it's so much the taking over in terms of like, it, well, it does, that does happen. I'm just I mean, kidding. No, 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 I know, but there's, there are moments where, you know, I've had a friend of mine who's a math teacher says, you know, I'll have a student come into class and then he can't explain his own answers on the homework mm-hmm. because he's using a level of math that he never learned. Um, and clearly that's not his work. But I think one of the things that we're actually doing is hovering over kids when they're doing their homework and when they first get frustrated, saving them from that frustration right away, giving them the next step. And in all the research on autonomy supportive parenting, what we find is that we create a learned helplessness mm-hmm. um, that if you don't let that child sort of feel uncomfortable for a minute and maybe learn to take a pause, maybe reread the instructions, maybe describe the, the, the confusion they're having and work it out for themselves, every time we sort of step in and just hand the next answer to the kid, we create a situation where our kid becomes less and less able to find that next answer themselves or they're less willing to even try. So that's what worries me the most, not necessarily parents doing the homework, which I realize happens, but I'm more concerned about sort of the parenting that happens sort of on a daily basis where it doesn't have anything to do with handing over answers. It has to do with approach to frustration. We don't want our kids to be frustrated. It's it's difficult to watch our kids be uncomfortable and we just want to remove that. But it's so important to let them sit with discomfort for just a little bit. And we think that we're helping them, but in the long run, we're hurting them. Right. And, and, you know, in one of my favorite books that's come out on education in the past couple of years called Make It Stick, they talk in that book specifically about the importance of desirable difficulties, that um, a difficulty that's just 
past what the child can actually do on their own can lead to some of the most effective, durable, in-depth learning. Um, and, and when I get to teach a kid in my classroom who can't hope to have that benefit because they can't deal with the difficulty, then, um, then right away that kid is, is at a disadvantage um, to the kids that actually can sit with difficulty for a moment and work things out. So certainly, you know, the message of your book is, is clear, but letting go is very, very difficult and probably one of the most difficult aspects of parenting. What, what advice, <laughs> what advice <laughs> can you give us to make this more bearable? Keep your eyes on the long-term goals. Remember that um, parenting, uh, that child development is not this beautiful, smooth, linear slope. It looks more like the, you know, the stock market. If you look at sort of the ups and downs of the stock market and that there are going to be days that really stink where your kid is practically in a recession. They've regressed. Um, but remember the fact that we really are our job. And I'm, I'm quoting a friend of mine, Julie Lithcott Hames, who wrote the book, How to Raise an Adult. Our job is to put ourselves out of a job. And that is really mm. sad, makes mm. me really sad, but I should be raising a kid that won't need me anymore, not increasing his dependency over time. Um, I, I spoke recently at a school where a woman said her 25 and 23 year old children that are, at, are at her house and they have no inclination of leaving. They went off to college and came back home and haven't really moved since. And she's really worried that she taught them that she sort of increased their dependence to the point where she um, has now has two kids in their mid twenties sitting on her couch and she can't help them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, our, our job is to put ourselves out of a job and, and deal with all of the, the long-term goals that that, that entails. So you've written this book, The Gift of Failure. You write for the New York Times, and uh, you also write for the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And so, what are the, what are your big questions you're working on now? I'm working on a whole lot of stuff about. Um, well, right now I'm working on a piece on on guidance counselors, and that's going to go live fairly soon. I'm working a lot more. I'm writing and researching a lot more about kids who are at serious risk for failure, mostly because they're in the foster care system, or they're addicted, or they are um, poor. Those kids, you know, don't really have the safety net that a lot of kids have to make mistakes and fail and pick themselves up and try again. They, you know, one failure for them can really just mean that they end up out on the street. So I'm trying to sort of come at this question from the direction of what do we do for kids that don't have the luxury of repeated failures and repeated do-overs. Um, so that's that. I, I happen to teach in a drug and alcohol rehab. I teach adolescents that are inpatient. So, um, you know, those are the kids that I teach now. And, and uh, I'm learning a lot more about what they face on a daily basis. Very interesting. So we'll look forward to see how that work develops and also look forward to seeing your article uh, on the counselors too as well. Yeah, we'll definitely Thanks. get that out to our counselors. Well, and I actually found out I misspoke. I called them guidance counselors. I'm supposed to call them school counselors. So that's the new accepted yes. term. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's changed, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much to Jessica for joining us to learn more about her work. You can visit her blog um, website jessicalehi.com. There are also several links in the show notes to her book and other articles which Jessica has published on the topic. And you can even follow her on Twitter at Jess Leahy.
And I've got some bonus chapters coming out that'll be available for people who subscribe at jessicalahey.com. And one in particular I'm excited about, which is for basically the, the gift of failure stuff, but for the kids. So I'm, I'm really excited to get that chapter out. Excellent. Look forward to that. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much, Jessica, for being a part of the show today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Each episode, we leave you with a couple of questions to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's questions, from your experience, what are the most challenging aspects of parenting? And what new learning from the gift of failure will you apply to your parenting tomorrow? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at TL Talk Radio and look for Season 2, Episode 27. We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes. Let us know your star rating and consider leaving a one or two sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Jessica. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.